I want to kind of transition a little bit. And in our in our series of compelling Christianity, uh, we were we're looking at Titus, and I want to take just a moment to uh, read through a passage of scripture because um, we have a guest speaker here with us, Jen Ellison, and she's going to be giving the message in just a little bit. Um, but I wanted us to kind of focus our hearts a little bit on Titus just before um, Jen comes up and speaks to us. And so if you have a Bible with you, uh, please grab that. And if you need one, uh, just wave at Dave. Dave would love to bring one up to you. Um, we're going to look at Titus chapter 2, and we're going to be looking from uh, verses 11 through 15, actually 14, 11 through 14 of Titus chapter 2. So let's read that together. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So we've been going through this this series called Compelling Christianity. We just had a chance to hear Christian's uh, message in his video there, uh, his story about the role that his mom played in living a compelling life for Christ and and what um, difference that made in his life and how that transformed his life. And now in a little bit here, um, we're about to hear from Jen um, how the very first believers, the early church in the book of Acts, lived compelling lives that transformed the world. And so, again, I think we're focusing on this idea of what does it look like to live a compelling life for Christ? And in this short passage of Titus, I think it does such a good job of setting up that question of why. Why we're supposed to live compelling lives for Christ. And, and like always, I think this comes down to identity. It's that identity of who God is and what he has done and how that informs us and changes us into who we are and what we do because of that. In that passage of scripture, it showed us who God is. It said this grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And that is Jesus Christ who came and was shown. And the Gospels, in the Gospels, then we see him teaching us what to do now. There's this idea of the now and the not yet. We're here now. And we are supposedly and should be looking for and waiting for Jesus' return. That that should be something on our radar that we're excited about. We don't know when. But like the whole church before us, this should be something that we are actually looking towards, this this moment when Jesus will come back and culminate and restore everything he has promised. But until then, we're in this place where we're called to do some things. We're called to say no to some things. We're called to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. So the stuff that's here and now, the temptations that are around us, and we're supposed to live in a way that's self-controlled, upright, and godly. 
And so essentially we're saying no to the things that are ungodly in nature, that are not of his character. And we are saying yes. We are choosing to say yes to the things that are of his character. And it's all while we wait. And I love how it says the the blessed hope of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the centerpiece of everything. He needs to be the centerpiece of everything. That is what drives us forward as a church. And I love that it says what he does for us, not what we do for ourselves. Verse 14, who gave himself for us on the cross to redeem us and to purify us. We don't redeem ourselves and we don't purify ourselves. Jesus does that work on our behalf to redeem us from the wickedness, the sin that separates us, and to purify us for a people that are his own, a people who are compelled by Jesus Christ and who desire now to live compelling lives so that others can see our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it boils down in my mind in that last little line that just says, eager to do what is good. That his people who belong to him are excited to do what he does. And that is who I think us as a church, as we look forward, and as we're about to hear from Jen, I think gives us the fuel as we drive forward to say it is about our identity found in Jesus Christ and his gospel that drives us forward in everything we do. And so before Jen comes up, I want to take a moment to pray, and then I'd love to give her a a nice introduction. So Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity for us as a church family, family, to gather. And we gather as family because of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And we lift him up, not just this morning, but we do especially this morning. But we want to continue to lift Jesus up in every moment of our lives, and we need the power of your Holy Spirit to do that within us. We desire, Father, that your word would come alive, that words like we see in Titus would be alive in our hearts to know what Jesus has done on our behalf and who he is, and that would drive us and fuel us as we understand our identity is found in Jesus and not in anything else. And so, Lord, I ask this morning um, that you would speak through our gathering, that you would speak through Jen, uh, and that we would all be able to hear the ways that you're wanting to lead us closer to Jesus and the ways that you are wanting us to live lives that are compelling because of Jesus Christ living through us. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are privileged this morning to have Jen Ellison with us. Uh, I just got to meet Jen, just, um, yeah, just had a chance to meet her about not even two weeks ago now. Uh, she was speaking to the staff at Kettlebrook Church, and, and I still actually, Jen, I have not known how Mike Moran, our lead pastor, somehow found Jen and met her and said and realized he needed to get her in front of our staff. Um, to hear some of just what, uh, just hear some of her stories of of her compelling life that she lived uh, and is living for Jesus Christ, and and also uh, I have just loved and, and just that one time so far of being able to sit and sort of ingest a lot of of Jen's teachings uh, and training that she was doing for us. And Jen is originally from England, so she still has that wonderful accent, um, and uh, she has some incredible experience 
doing missions work uh, and missions training, church planting, and also leading and training leaders how to lead missional communities and disciple-making movements. Uh, and we're now lucky enough to have Jen and her husband, Mark, actually living not too far away in the Milwaukee area. Um, they're, they're in northeast Milwaukee, right? And, um, and they've been kind of digging into reaching the diverse folks that that make up that community and, and just trying to reach them for Christ. And Jen's also a new mom and she has some hilarious baby videos <laughs> that you need to ask her to show you after the gathering. So please give a really warm welcome for Jen. I suppose I have to speak for them to hear me, don't yeah. I? <laughs> Thanks for that introduction, Dan. Um, yeah, I've lived in, um, in Africa for 10 years, and that was uh, a breeze compared to a newborn. <laughs> um, as, as Dan said, me and my husband live in Milwaukee. Uh, we've been there for about 18 months uh, with our baby daughter, who's three months old. So I hope... Um, I hope that what I've got to share with you today will encourage you uh, in what God's called you to do here in Kiwaskin, of how he wants you to be used to extend his kingdom. Um, We have a God who is compelled, and that's why we are compelled. So I want to go through the book of Acts with you, um, because the book of Acts is the story of about a 30-year period of how this God who compelled, is compelled by love um, but chooses to use us, the body, to uh, extend that into the world. Um, Luke writes the book and he, he wants to show us that the church has penetrated the known world at that time. Uh, over, as I say, over a period of 30 years. So if you've got your Bibles with you, um, we're going to start in Acts 1 verse 8 and it's the um, it's kind of really the, the, the heart of, uh, of Jesus that's, he's, um, he's saying to the, to the disciples let's pick up from verse 7 he replied the father alone has the authority to set those dates and times that they are not for us to know but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So in 30 years that happens, but how does it happen? And what are the the principles, what what are the practices that we see in this book? Because we've got the same charge. We've got the same vision, we've got the same mandate that Jesus is calling us to be um, witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I believe that every local congregation um, needs to have um, a witness in all of those areas. Uh, That doesn't mean you all have to go overseas and go and witness in Afghanistan or anything like that. No, in our modern cities now and in our communities, we often have the ends of the earth that are moving, moving in. You know, in Milwaukee where we live, um, there's, 
a, a huge refugee population, um, particularly Rohingyas, and they are the most unreached people group and persecuted uh, in, uh, in Asia at the moment. So God is, is bringing people to us, and we, we have to hear who is God calling us to reach. So from chapters 1 to 6, that's about 5 to 10 years, we see that there's kind of just a revival. There is a revival in Jerusalem. Chapter 2, the Holy Spirit's poured out, 3,000 come to know the Lord. Numbers are being added daily, we see healings. Um, And Jerusalem, the believers there are are enjoying this period of uh, revival. But it stays in Jerusalem for almost 10 years. Most of the conversions, most of the, um, the, the kingdom is breaking out in Jerusalem. But Jesus has promised that his disciples will be witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what is it in chapter 6, what is it is the first trigger that takes the gospel outside of Jerusalem? Any thoughts? What is the trigger that takes this persecution? Persecution is the thing that takes the gospel outside of Jerusalem. And that kind of boggles our mind a bit. Why would God use persecution? Why would a loving, caring father allow persecution and suffering? Does that contradict his goodness? No, it doesn't. But we have to grapple with these issues because um, I, I was living in, um, in Burundi for five years and it's the, um, it's the second poorest country in the world. I was training local Burundians in, in mission to see their communities transform with the gospel. And about three years ago, uh, it started to descend into conflict and civil war. So on a, on a Saturday, there would be a ceasefire day, which meant that nobody would kill each other on a Saturday. Sounds crazy, um, but that's what would happen because people would have to eat, people would have to regroup. So on a Saturday, as a, as a, as a staff, we would meet together and we would, we would discuss, was anybody hurt this week? How, how, are, how are the people um, it was a very painful time. Um, if I, it, the city was in lockdown, so there was gunshots, there was shelling everywhere. But as a, as a white person, I was kind of safer than the local people, so I would uh, kind of walk around the back roads to, to try and get to the believers' homes to do kind of teaching and encouragement. And there was one day I kind of emerged from the, from the road and about ten kids followed me. And I was, I was saying, what, what are you doing? And they said, we, we, we've, we need to go and get some bread for our family, but if we walk with you, they won't shoot us. Um, and I agonized. I agonized with this question of, is, is God good when he allows such persecution and, and suffering? And uh, uh, three of my close friends that were working there were all put in prison because of their work um, in the, in the communities, their work for the gospel. And I, I struggled with it, I have to be honest. I, I doubted a lot. And um, I questioned. And in, 
in my biggest doubts, in my biggest questions, um, there was one day where I, if I got up early enough, I could run across the road and get to a small little conference center. So at least I'd be stuck in somewhere that's safe, that had internet, um, and I could get a drink. And um, this, this one day, uh, there, was a, there was a guy there that I'd not seen before. And he was also stuck in the conference center. He happened to be American and was from Milwaukee. And um, we got chatting. And uh, we started realizing that potentially I knew straight away that God had given him to me as my husband. I mean, you don't go to Burundi to find your husband. (laughs) Um, And over the course of about three days... We had about 10 hours of conversations uh, where it was, it was really clear that there was something of God in our meeting. It was a bit surreal because we'd be discussing our hobbies, getting to know each other when there was gunfire outside and people running inside for safety. Um, but in that moment, and long story, but in, we did actually get married after uh, we got engaged uh, seven months later. We'd met on three different continents, four different countries over seven months, uh, and got married about 12 months later. So in that moment where I could see the worst of humanity and the worst that the enemy can do, I experienced the grace of God, that he is there. And he spoke a word to me that you will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Amidst this horror around me, I began to see glimpses of God's grace, not just in my life, but my friend's life. So the question of is God good when he allows persecution and suffering, it it stopped and I could see blessed are the persecuted. My friend Venust, he went into prison and he was there for nine months. We were praying, God release him, God release him. I went and visited him and um, I was thinking, what can I say to him? How on earth can I encourage him? He was in a cell of about 30 people, uh, no bigger bigger than probably here to the end of that stage, with a small bucket uh, where they would all go to the toilet. And um, he said to me, his, his eyes were bright and alive. He said, you'll never guess what God is doing. And I was like, "Mm, okay. (laughs) He said, all the rebel leaders have been put in my cell and we're doing Bible studies every day together. God is doing an amazing thing. So he was in this cell with all the rebel leaders for nine months and then God released him. Um, It's extraordinary what God does, but we have to submit and surrender to his ways. Um, 2 Timothy 3:12 Everyone who wants to be a live a godly life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. If you want to live a compelling life you will be persecuted. But we have to submit and surrender to that. Um, I think what we've done in the west is we've crafted a, a much more comfortable cross and we don't want to lose our lives. Um, but God's call to us is to lay it down and surrender and submit and we will experience the blessing in that blessed are the persecuted as God um, 
as the, as the church began to experience peace after Saul was converted, Peter then begins to go into Judea and Samaria and meet the, the believers and the, the people who've been converted from this wave of um, persecution that's pushed the believers out into those regions. He begins to find all these believers that were, um, were Gentiles that, that God is miraculously moving in. Uh, in Acts 10, we, see, we hear the story of, of, uh, of Cornelius that's, that's converted. And Cornelius is a Roman officer. It's forbidden for Jews to even uh, eat and associate with people like that. So Peter is confronted by his own prejudice. When, we, when God moves us out, he's moved them out through persecution. He doesn't want them to get comfortable in Jerusalem. He's moved them out. But then he's conf- they're confronted by their own prejudice and their hindrances to reaching people who are different from them is because of their own issues. <laughs> Peter, God, gives him a vision. Remember the, um, the different animals that come down and, and God says, don't, don't call something unclean that's clean. And Peter has to recognize, he declares that God has no favorites. Where he wouldn't go and associate with some people, he now does because God compels him to push through his prejudices, to repent and to have revelation that God doesn't have any favourites. And I think one of the things that stop us to have compelling lives is we want to have compelling lives with people who are like us and we like. But God will call us to people who are different from us and their behaviour is often different. And it can challenge us because we might judge them. Um, In South Africa, I was uh, church planting in in the townships in South Africa. And um, there was one one guy that we met that was very open to God. But he had a 14-year-old wife um, who was pregnant. And he was, I forget his age, maybe he was in his mid-40s. and I really struggled with that. Um, now, culturally, there wasn't, that wasn't an issue um, for, for his culture. But for me, I found that really difficult. So I, was, I just thought to myself, I can't reach this man if I'm offended by what he's doing and what he's saying. He knows no different. This, that was an example in my life where I had to, Lord, Deal with my judgment. Deal with my prejudice so that I can reach the people that you're calling me to. There's nothing special about me. I just need to be available, Lord, and I need to be open for you to convict me where I'm judging people. Um, In all of this, when we think about persecution, when we think about dealing with our own prejudice, this is, this is all in kind of Acts 1 to uh, 13. Well, I start to see that the church, the early church, is more concerned about being Jesus' inheritance than about getting their inheritance. And one of the things about coming back to the West is that 
we've got a tendency to focus on our inheritance. What do we get? It's about our blessing. It's about our stuff. But actually, we're called to be the bride. We're Jesus' inheritance. And that's part of, that is our identity. Again, I think we have to, we have to repent of this self-centered Christianity that has this soft, comfortable cross that's just about what we get. If, oh, if we want compelling lives, we need a robust faith that can deal with hardship, that can deal with struggle, because the world out there is struggling and is suffering. They need a God who suffered. They need an Emmanuel. We can't avoid it. So, we see the gospel that's gone out into Judea and Samaria now. Um, And in Acts 13, we see that there's a second trigger which takes the gospel into the ends of the earth. And anybody know what that trigger is? This second thing, what, what is it that, that takes the gospel further from Samaria and Judea? Let me read it to you. It's Acts 13, verses 1 to 3. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Menaeum, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. One day, as these men were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Dedicate Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and praying, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. What's the second trigger? The second trigger is that the people in the church were intentionally seeking God through prayer and fasting intentionally seeking God through prayer and fasting because the heart of this is a people that's available and that is commissioned by God they're seeking him for his will for his kingdom to come they know it's not about them and their lifestyle is an intentional lifestyle of prayer and fasting. Um, sadly, in the church, there's a lot of man-made activity and a lot, a lot less prayer and fasting that's seeking God's work and not man's work. Um, in South Africa, as I said, I was uh, in the township that I, we lived in. Um, there was a a, a brothel next door to us in, in front of us opposite us was a Hindu uh, priest and they would sacrifice do their weekly sacrifices and on our left was an imam training centre where there were 30 young imams being trained in Islam um, quite frankly I was terrified <laughs> um, but I said to God I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything, whatever it takes. Um, And he sent me there. Uh, I didn't know what to do. (laughs) 
Um, so we prayed. We prayed. We fasted. There's nothing like going on mission. And I don't mean you have to go to South Africa. I mean going on mission is stepping outside of your door every day. But once you do that, once you go onto the front line and just say, Lord, I'm available, he does things and puts you in places where you can't even imagine. In, in the time when we were, just, we were just scared, we didn't know what to do. Uh, this one guy, we hear a knock on the door. It was about nine o'clock. We were like, well, do we open the door? It's a bit, a bit dangerous. So we did, and he came in and he said, I was just about to beat my wife. But something in me, just, I just had to come to your house. Because when I'm in this house, it's the only time in my entire life that I feel peace. Why is that? So we, he, we made him a cup of tea. I mean, in England, all you do is make people a cup of tea in crises. <laughs> and he sat down. And we, uh, we shared the gospel with him and he just wept and experienced the love of God uh, for the first time. Him and his uh, family over the next few years were walking with the Lord. But sadly, two years later, him and his wife were both killed. Um, that's one example of being available, being scared, but God bringing people to you. I, uh, I joined the local township soccer team, which was uh, all, all women. And um, the, um, there was a, always about 500 people that would come out to, uh, to watch us. And we would, we would regularly have time where we would share with the kids, where we would share with the, uh, the people on the sidelines. It, it got to the point where the the, the captains of their soccer team were the people who ran the crime and drug network within the township that I lived in. Um, so we were very protected in those five years. Um, they, they were not actually converted, but they allowed us into areas where not even the police would go um, to share the gospel. Again, there's nothing special about me. Um, one of the most painful times in my life was uh, after South Africa, I was kind of praying with, a, with a, a group of us and we felt that God was calling us to Burundi, which is in Central Africa. I went to the organization that I'd been part of for 15 years and I said, God's calling me to uh, Burundi now. Um, unfortunately, like in... In, in the church, people do have agendas, and this wasn't the agenda of the lead uh, leader of the organization. And he was very angry that I wasn't doing essentially what he, he thought I should do. So he said that they would no longer endorse my calling. He contacted my sponsors, so I lost finances, I lost friends, and I lost confidence because when your leader is telling you you're getting it wrong you're not called to this but in your heart you know that that's what God's called you to you struggle you, you wrestle with it and I wrestle with a good three or four months is he right until I got to the stage where I cannot fear man more than God I have to respond to God's call on my life not what man thinks
And that's what this passage is talking about. Acts 13 is God commissioning two people to go and take his word. Yes, the believers laid hands on them to go, but they were commissioned by God. And I think we wait for people to recognize us. We wait for people to say that we're good enough or that we're gifted enough. You can do this. We compare ourselves to others. And it hinders us. We don't have a compelling life because we're crippled by comparing ourselves to others or by waiting for somebody in authority to affirm us to go. We've got to fear God, not man. Within six months of getting to Burundi, I had doubled the finances in the previous five years. I had six churches as opposed to two churches that were on board with the work there. Um, and it was, it was a case of God's abundant blessing in the midst of that. At the time, it wasn't pleasant. <laughs> but later on, I could see it was God's way out. Um, and the work kind of mushroomed from then on. So that's the second, that's the second trigger, is intentional prayer and fasting. And I don't mean you need to take half a day. I don't mean you, we have to be super spiritual. I just mean we have to be intentional. One meal a week. If you're not praying at all, ten minutes in the morning. But just orientate your heart, your intentionality, your lifestyle around prayer and fasting and seeking God. Not seeking what man wants, not seeking what you want, but seeking him. The third trigger. The third trigger is in Acts 19. We see that Paul is now in Ephesus. Um, Acts 19, verse, let's do 8 to 10. Then Paul went to the synagogue and preached boldly for the next three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became stubborn, rejecting his message and publicly speaking against the way. So Paul left the synagogue and took the believers with him. Then he held daily discussions at the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for the next two years so that people throughout the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. What is this trigger? Paul, in Ephesus, spends two years meeting in this hall of Tyrannus, which is probably um, owned by Tyrannus. That's what the, the lecture hall is named after. Um, and he, what the commentators say is that he took the, the siesta time which was probably 11 till 3, every day when the lecture hall wasn't being used and the believers would gather for training. What's the trigger that took the gospel throughout the whole province of Asia? Training. Training. I don't mean you have to go to university. I don't mean academic I mean, when God, when God has called you to do something, find ways to be responsible to growing in that. I don't mean self-improvement. 
if God is calling you to work with children, then find other people who are doing that, who are a bit further on down the road than you. Get people to mentor you. Um, when I was 20, um, I knew that God had called me to, uh, to share the gospel, to plant churches. Um, so I met this couple and I gave them no option. They had to take me everywhere they went. <laughs> so they were church planters in England for the 30 years. Um, so I just went everywhere with them. I served everything that they did. Um, I went to all the consultancies. I went to all their groups. I was being trained. Yeah, I, I only did a master's in, uh, in missiology and development. 15 years of mission I'd already done without any formal education. I only did that much later on because I needed the master's to, to teach. Um, so, I, again, I'm not, I'm not talking about um, formal teaching. What I'm talking about is um, primarily relationship. If God's called you to do something, join with somebody else. If he's called you to, um, I don't know, reach Muslims, read the Quran. Find out what's going on, what the, the um, Islamic worldview is. We have to be diligent in what God's called us to do. One of the most sobering things that I, I've thought of is I'm going to have to give an account to Jesus at the end of my life of what I did, but also what I didn't do. And that's really sobering for me. Um, but when he calls you, act upon that. Get training, get some skills, um, and just step out. So in, in summary, and then I'll pray for us. Um, if the band, do you want to come up? I think in response to this, let's just take one minute before the, the band kind of lead us in a final song what's God saying to you not what am I saying think about the three triggers persecution intentional prayer and fasting and training what's he saying to you are you a small group leader do you need more training in some of the biblical stuff Are you waiting for others to affirm you? Are we avoiding persecution? Are we avoiding rejection? Are we avoiding suffering? Hope we made this message about us. We need to repent. If you lose your life, you will gain it, I promise you. Don't fear loss. You will gain far more. And Jesus, Jesus for, the, for the joy that's set before him, he endured the cross. Allow God to show you the joy that's set before you so that you can embrace the cross every day. Let's just take a moment of silence and then I'll 
pray and you can respond in your own heart, your own way as the, the band leaders in a final song. Jesus, I thank you that you saved us. I thank you that you suffered way more than we could ever imagine. And you call us to life. But the way to that life is to die. Lord, we repent of where we have chosen comfort. We've avoided things. Lord, we pray for courage and boldness and bravery. Confidence not in ourselves, but in our sovereign Father. Lord, would you heal us where we get wounded along the way. Lord, pick us up. Lord, may we hear your voice through your spirit. May we surrender. May we see you and your work for us here. Lord, we're available. Have your way. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.